This is live from my office. Coming up, another great show. Before we get to it, though, a thank you to our friend David Hochberg and our partners, as Team Hochberg is the title sponsor of Live from My Office. Here's what you need to know. If you're waiting for rates to fall, time is not on your side right now. Waiting is not your friend. Are rates as low as they were before? No, they're not, because they've gone up. This happens in life. And don't wait, because waiting now is a terrible idea. If you need a mortgage, now is the time to get it done. Team Hochberg is ready to help. They've helped me. They've helped thousands of my listeners through the years. You can pay off debt, reduce your monthly payments, do all sorts of things that Team Hochberg can do the heavy lifting and the math on, but you have to make the first step. Pick up the phone and call 855-56-DAVID or go to 56david.com and tune in to Home Sweet Home Chicago on the radio, hosted by David Hochberg, Saturday mornings after House Marts at 10 on WGN. And Homeside Financial is an equal housing lender. NMLS number 1124061. Michael O'Hanlon is a senior fellow and director of research and foreign policy at the Brookings Institute. Frankly, as always, I've told you this, Michael, for years, you're too smart for my show. <laughs> but it's nice of you to come back. Good to reconnect with you. Nice to be with you. Michael, let's talk about, um, you know, I wouldn't call it a worry necessarily, but it's certainly a concern that Ukraine goes off the front pages and we forget that there's this raging war on the other side of the world that directly impacts us. Where do we stand this morning? Hi. Well, Steve, it's, it's it, as you say, very frustrating. and We're going to have to be in it potentially for the long haul. I've, you know, been following it pretty carefully, like a lot of people, and I don't know anybody who really sees a near-term path to negotiation or even a ceasefire. I think what you have to hope for in the best case is that, you know, obviously it would be great if Ukraine could take back all of its territory, but that's pretty unlikely. So at least you would see a stabilization of the fighting along certain lines, more or less where the forces are right now. And then both sides realize that, you know, it's better to go for a ceasefire and even though there's no long-term settlement because the Russians don't agree, presumably, to give up the land they've taken, you can at least uh, stop the fighting or slow it. And, uh, and then both sides essentially occupy what they've got. And then you think about a peace process going forward where the major leverage that we have and Ukraine has is that Russia is not going to be allowed to rejoin the world economy, essentially, until... Um, it gives back some or most or all of the territory in Ukraine and agrees to a permanent peace. That's the best case scenario, and that one is probably several months away, even from, uh, you know, a best case interpretation of possibilities. You know, what you've described is the best case scenario, and it seems to me the only way it's accomplished is if Putin just dies already or is really sick. And I apologize for putting it that bluntly. But that's really where we are, as far as I'm concerned, is as long as he remains in power and remains um, healthy, in quotes, um, I don't see any way he changes. Am I wrong? I'm not sure you're wrong, uh, but I don't want to base a strategy on waiting for Putin to die because that could be sure. 15 years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this this war could be as long as World War One. It reminds me of World War One in some ways, the artillery barrages, the you know, the sort of semi-stable front lines, but the ongoing horrible killing. And um, so I think you're probably right. And that's a pretty, uh, you know, uncomfortable thought. But but maybe even Putin could recognize at some point that if the squeeze on his economy is going to continue until he 
you know, until he stops the fighting, that he's going to have to accept less than he might have originally wanted. And so if he can if he can persuade everyone that Ukraine should never be in NATO and he can hold on to some piece of the territory he's taken since 2014 uh, and, and maybe have other pieces of territory sort of shared sovereignty or put off for a long term uh, referendum until 2040 or something. And in the meantime, you just live and let live. You know, maybe that kind of a possibility begins to look better than having these sanctions stay in place and perhaps even extend to natural gas over the next couple of years. I mean, at some point, the Europeans really could build alternative means of getting natural gas from other sources. And at that point, Putin's economy takes a further nosedive. So that's the only hope. But again, I'm not really trying to persuade you, Steve, because I think you were probably right that it's, it's an unlikely prospect at best. Well, as you know, with any uh, problems, there's the the immediate, the midterm and the long term solution. The immediate solution that we're a part of is supplying billions of dollars in aid and weaponry to Ukraine. Right. People are starting to question, is the money being spent appropriately, wisely? Are there personnel and training enough to even use these weapons we're sending? All of those questions, uh, I don't feel, have been clearly answered. Do we know the answers? I think the answer to those questions is yes. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to get too excited about pumping billions of dollars into an economy and a military just to let them keep a war going that's killing two or 300 people a day. So it's not like we're going to be rejoicing over this. Mm-hmm. But the alternative is much worse. The alternative is seeing them overrun by Russia. And what we're sending them really is allowing them to more or less begin to stabilize the front lines, at least fairly close to where they are now. And, of course, it was enough to help them fend off the Russian attack on Kiev back in the wintertime. And it's enough to keep their economy afloat somewhat, even though their gross domestic product is expected to decline by about 40 percent this year. So we're sort of the lifeline for their economy, and we're the main source of weaponry for their military, and the alternatives to not providing that are worse, and I think we can afford it indefinitely. I, you know, it, The numbers look big, but if you're providing a, a, a billion dollars a month or something in that ballpark, and your military budget is $800 billion a year, um, you know, that, that means that what we're providing Ukraine is a couple percent of our defense budget. Mm-hmm. if you want to put it that way. So, yes, we could afford it unless somebody decides to make politics out of it. And I, you know, I do worry about that possibility. Do you worry about this getting bigger and, and uh, NATO involvement? And by the way, if you're wondering how serious this is, if you pay any attention to it, the fact that Sweden wants to be involved in NATO and wants to be a part of NATO and Finland uh, wants to be in NATO those were just really amazing to me because Sweden has made a, a career out of saying, you, you fight it out, we'll be over here. Right. Uh, no doubt. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm in favor now of Sweden and Finland joining NATO, and they almost certainly will. Uh, I wrote a book five years ago proposing that they not join NATO and that Ukraine not join NATO and creating sort of a neutral zone in Eastern Europe. But it's too late for that anymore. Uh, As to whether the risks could get greater, yes, I think they could. I don't want to scare people into believing Putin's going to launch a nuclear weapon at Chicago or Washington. But I do think that he could conceivably, if things go really badly, launch a nuclear weapon at a ship in the Baltic Sea Mm -hmm. that's carrying supplies that he thinks are, you know, continuing to help Ukraine take back land or something like that. He could try to escalate to de-escalate, as the Russians like to say, or their doctrine likes to you know, propose. And what that means is to shock the world into such a state of fear that we're prepared to have a negotiation on ending this thing just to make sure it doesn't go towards nuclear war. 
And, you know, so I, I do feel, feel that, that we have to anticipate the possibility that if, if the war starts to go really well for Ukraine, ironically, that could put us in a scarier position uh, in terms of possible Russian escalation. So uh, I'm trying to think through ways that if Ukraine can make some modest progress, then you could negotiate at least a ceasefire that would not concede territory to Russia, but would have some of these shared sovereignty concepts or a long-term referendum, and you just sort of sit on the issue for a while, because letting them fight it out, uh, you know, I'm not sure that's really going to be a stable, safe trajectory. And if, if ironically, again, if Ukraine does really well, I would be cheering for them, but I'd sure. also be scared. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I've not heard anyone else bring it up. Jane? Yeah. So, Mike, well, you were just saying Sweden, Finland joining NATO, and now that strengthens the U.S.-NATO military position. But we think about that higher priority, the threat that could happen. We also have to look at China. Aren't American uh, security strategists sort of interested in what's happening there as well? Yeah, great point, Jane. And, uh, you know, let me say, uh, just in the interest of being provocative or contrarian, one thing about China that's a little more friendly than you hear a lot of people say, because we're all upset that China is Putin's friend in this whole thing. And, that you know, just before the invasion, Putin visited at the time of the Olympics, and Putin and Xi said they had a friendship that had no limits, and that was bad. But uh, the good news is that China has refused Russian requests for weaponry ever since this war began. And uh, I think China really wants this war to go away, like the rest of us. Uh, they're not doing as much as they could or should. They're buying too much Russian oil, and they're still giving Putin some you know, diplomatic support. But they're also not sending high-technology weaponry uh, to Russia. So I think it's important to put that on the table, because it's not like China and Russia are completely in cahoots on this conflict. They do have a relationship that's too close, and we should be trying to find ways to push them apart, not push them together. But it's not like uh, China is rooting for Putin all out on this. Having said that, the other question is, would China see the Western response to this conflict as indicating that it could somehow get away with an attack on Taiwan? And that is the really big fear that a lot of people have in the strategic community. I think the answer is probably not, because one thing China's seeing is, you know, just reaffirming the age-old truth that war is unpredictable, and it tends to be a lot harder than you think when you start it. And so I'm hopeful that that's the main lesson the Chinese are drawing. But there's no way to be sure. Michael O'Hanlon, Brookings Institute, for everything you write and have written, uh, other than coming by your house and asking if we can borrow it, where do we find that? <laughs> well, www.brookings.edu, and you'll luckily find some stuff there by more clever people than myself, like Ben Bernanke and a few others. So, no, it's great. So thanks, thanks for asking. Michael, thank you. My best to your family. Hey, you too. Have a good summer. It's the best golf summer ever, and you can enjoy it at Cantini Golf Course, one of my absolute favorites. CantiniGolf.com is the website. I sat down with Matt Tuller, their terrific head pro, and talked about all facets of the game, the most mental game. And if you're struggling to break 100, should you really be spending all that time thinking on the golf course? Uh, I think that they should be concerned the most about it, right? I mean, they're the, they've got the most to gain. They can get their uh, their scores down into the 90s, even the 80s, right? Thinking around the golf course, majority of individuals who shoot over 100, it's it's simple mistakes, right? That uh, maybe were costly off the tee because they decided to hit driver on a sharp short par four that they put it out of bounds on, or maybe they were punching out. They didn't see that trouble that was behind the um, the green that maybe they put it into some water. Um, 
similar things when we were talking about pitching, right? They looked at, oh, look, it's only 50 to the pin, but they don't keep in, in mind that it's 45 to carry the bunker. They short side themselves. So I think they've got the most to gain from thinking around uh, the golf course and they can save the most strokes. Think about how you're going to play next time and how much better you can be. Get a lesson at Cantini, have a great time on their three nines and one of the finest golf courses there is, period. Book your tee time or get your questions answered. CantiniGolf.com, C-A-N-T-I-G-N-Y Golf. CantiniGolf.com, 630-260-8197. Dr. John Duffy will join us in just a second. Still to come also, Marty McLaughlin, the head of DCFS, has been held in contempt again. Uh, when is that leadership going to change? What's it going to take for the governor to make that move? Uh, also, Dr. Grant McCracken, allegedly his real name. We'll be on talking about the return of the artisan on uh, Amazon Prime Day. It seems right to be talking about people who make stuff and... Jane Klaus in the house. You've been making stuff forever. In fact, I'm knitting you a sweater right now. <laughs> I hope you like it. I hope it's You're fits. the hottest grandma ever. <laughs> I am a grandma. So, that's hilarious. <sighs> uh, let me get to Dr. Duffy here. And I've known Dr. John Duffy for a long time. Terrific guy, clinical psychologist, expert in parenting and relationships, and author of The Available Parent. Uh, look, uh, John, the thing that people need to hear more than anything else right now is what do I say to my kids in the world we live in? What do you say? Yeah, it's so hard, Steve. I mean, hopelessness and anxiety and depression, and all the things that are the stock and trade of us therapists is high. Um, and so we can't what we can't say to our kids is everything's fine. Everybody's perfectly safe. The world is not a mess. Uh, we, we, we don't have the luxury of saying that our kids have too much access. So what we can say to them is, um, what can we do? What, what can we do to move the needle in a positive direction? Kids respond better to this, I'm finding, than anything else. Is like some kind of call to action. If there's been a, a mass shooting in your area, can you do something for one of the families? You know, some, something like that that feels like, okay, I'm doing something that makes some kind of difference. Uh, I'm finding motion and movement does better than just talking to them because sure. they know a lot of the answers. Yeah, well, it makes a lot of sense. What about fear, though? You know, kids are afraid. They're afraid when they go back to school in the fall or they're afraid their parents might be hurt or injured being out in the world. How do we deal with that? Well, the first, the first thing you have to do is you got to listen to them. Uh, you, you can't just tell them, oh, everything's going to be great, because I work with a ton of kids, Steve. They do not believe this. Um, and so, so don't uh, blow it off. Understand that their fears are real and, and, and treat them as such. Exactly. And that alone can give kids a lot of comfort. Like, okay, I'm not crazy. My friends aren't crazy. We're, we're making some degree of sense here. And then you want to let them know, Hey, we're, this is a complex, confusing topic. We're working on it. And by and large, we think you're pretty safe, you know? So you, you want to give them some degree of comfort and hope that things are okay. Things are going to be okay. And they're going to be safe. 
We get Jane and Nick in here if you guys have stuff. Yeah, and you know, it's you're validating your child's feelings while being honest about your feelings. But we tend to talk to our kids about uh, what to do and how they're feeling right after a terrible news story about violence or a mass shooting. When should we actually start talking to the kids? Because it's always happening right after or right before. Is there a certain age? And can we start the conversation? You don't want to scare them, but you have to, you know, get the conversation open. It's such a good question, Jane, because now, you know, unlike when we were kids, you know, now kids have access to all the things, all the information from ages as uncomfortably early ages, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. So you almost have to talk with all, all your kids, you know, very young kids. Um, you have to be age appropriate about it. You can't talk to them about the, um, the nastiest part of what's going on out there with a seven-year-old. But I think you have to acknowledge their fears just like you have to acknowledge a 16-year-old's fears, you know, um, and, uh, and talk to them about, like, well, what do you think we can do about this? And kids respond well to this kind of question, but there really isn't an age where you can entirely blow this off because this can pop up on a notification on an iPad when a kid is playing an innocuous game. So we have to assume our kids know to some extent what the headlines are. They might not know the specifics, but they know, they know broadly Something's gone wrong. Something is not okay. And that happens almost every day. And it's hard. It's hard for parents to be open to discussing really scary topics. And, you know, your first instinct is in all likelihood to protect your kids from the bad stuff in the world. But when they have this kind of access, what Dr. Duffy's saying makes total sense. You have to deal with the reality of what they know, what they may think they know that they have incorrect, and what you're going to do about it as a family to the best of your ability. So that's all that's all great advice. You know, uh, the producer of this show, Tom Hush, uh, had an interesting uh, uh, take the other day, which I, I think, Jane, you're only slightly older than Tom. Of course, I'm old That's, enough to be Tom's great-grandfather. <laughs> um, but it goes to Miranda, who works on this show as well. Um, and really, anybody under the age of 30. And let me get Tom in here for this. Talk about what you talked about the other day, that you are a child of Columbine. Yeah, I mean, Columbine happens in 1999. And I never lived, and many people, my pretty much everyone my age, and never lived in a world not knowing that this can happen in their school. And not knowing that this is a uh, material reality of the modern world of the 21st century um as as bad as that sounds so john but did you go to school with fear uh, about it or yeah it was coupled with fears of living in a post 9-11 world uh living in a post columbine world and then when i was in college that's when you, you get stuff like when we were in high school i think uh virginia tech happens then you get parkland and it's just this increasing number of yeah, events that, that just compound. So I guess, John, I you know, how do you deal with people who are getting into that adulthood like myself? I'm 28, and we're still feeling these total fears that have not been dealt with surrounding these events. I've never really gotten to talk. I've never talked to anyone about how I feel about that. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm so glad you brought that up, Tom, because that's that's true now of everybody from your age all the way down to uh, a five-year-old and younger is that this is kind of commonplace to you. This is not as much as this would have been alarming to us. I, I started my practice when Columbine happened and that was a huge deal. 
Uvalde might not be a word we remember a couple of years from now. So you're right. This has become common and ordinary. And so we have to recognize our kids are growing up in a different world than we are. So we need to provide them a different set of emotional tools. So we work on anxiety management and we talk about like, you know, breathing techniques and, you know, talking to people about your fears instead of just uh, tamping them down. And this is especially true for boys, but it's true for all kids that, you know, um, it is okay to be anxious going into school um, and it's okay to be anxious around these things. And if your anxiety is beyond a certain threshold, it's okay to go down and talk to the social worker for 15 minutes. Like use the tools at your disposal to manage um, any hopelessness, anxiety, depression that you're suffering. And almost every kid is suffering some of this stuff. How do people get a hold of you? Yeah, so uh, drjohnduffy.com. If uh, you can't find everything you need to know about me there, um, then that's on me. (laughs) (laughs) Which, oddly enough, is the slogan for his practice. Yeah, Yeah, it's weird. Uh, and uh, Dr. John Duffy, the available parent, very important read as well. So uh, I get that. Thanks for doing this. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Dr. And, you know, John's I, great. I just thought what Tom brought up, he is great. What Tom brought up the other day, so it was really interesting because, you know, we grew up where if you had a fire drill at school, um, it was kind of cool because you got to go outside. Right. Yeah. You know, ding, ding, ding. And it was a little bit scary when you're a little kid, but. I never went to school with the idea that, oh, my God, the school is going to be on fire. Ever. And then the drills that we did in school, and I find it interesting, too, what Tom brought up, because I think partly for the parents, we haven't dealt with this as children, and the kids almost know more of the safety protocols. At school, when the alarm went off, we were practicing tornado drills or fire drills. We yeah. weren't practicing, you know, mass shooting drills and you know and how, how to run outside. Life. Exactly. And it's going to be interesting to see sociologically, does this change the age in which parents are giving kids cell phones simply for the reason that they want to be in contact with them and they want to give the kids some measure of confidence that they can, you know, have communication to them. And then, of course, you got the whole other part of that. Then you got to manage the cell phone. Right, right. It's hard. It's Jane, hard. It's hard. I know. I'm sorry. It's hard. And we have to be in communication with the teachers and oh, the schools. Jane, I'm trying to get over COVID here. I this know. is too much. I'm glad that your kids are grown. Oh, thank God I'm old. <laughs> thank you for listening to Live from My Office, a service of Monkey Run Productions. All rights reserved. The podcast is hosted by Steve Cochran, and it's mixed, edited, and produced by me, Ross Cochran. Steve is available for corporate speaking gigs. He would love to emcee your event, and occasionally, he's funny. Thank you for listening. Head to CochranShow.com for more.